I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 24 on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. I am Jeff, and with me is the hairy-footed Hoy. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. And we have a very special guest with us today. We've got Daniel J. Bishop, author of The Imperishable Sorceress, The Arwitch Grinder, The Campaign Element series, The Dispatches from the Ravencrow King series, Fairy Tales from the Unlit Shores series. He's also got two blogs, Ravencrow King's Nest and the DCC Trove of Treasures. Daniel J. Bishop writes a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> You're a very prolific man. Thank you for being on the show with us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit how, about how you got into gaming to start with. Okay. I started with Holmes Basic back in, I think it was Christmas 1979. So I've been doing this for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to first edition, second edition, AD&D, played third, did not care at all for fourth. Started working on my own version and then discovered Dungeon Crawl Classics. Now, your own version that you're working on, did you ever finish that or did you abandon that once you found DCC? I abandoned it, largely. Uh-huh. Uh, eventually, some of the options and things I'll have to write up for DCC. Okay. There's still usable stuff there. I'd rather write the adventures than write the rules. Mm-hmm. So there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think I should recommend reading an old episode, uh, entry in your blog that um, where you're at is sort of kind of a Pathfinder town at the time. Um, has it become more of a DCC town in Toronto at this point? I think Pathfinder still has a pretty large foothold. We do our best, but... Well, you know, we're the, uh, we're the sort of punk rock underground of, uh, you know, RPGs, I guess, so... Yeah, well, something like that. Some of the Pathfinder adventures are actually pretty good. They just have to be converted to a better system. Yeah, I remember some like the uh, Richard Peck modules are pretty pretty horrendous and, and scary or something like that. So, um, but anyway, without going further into edition wars, Daniel, how did you get started with uh, sort of the appendix and literature? Were you aware of it at the time when you were reading playing Dungeons and Dragons, or was it something that you were already reading? Uh, a lot of it actually was stuff that I picked up independent of the listing in appendix in Um I was reading Robert Howard. I was reading Tolkien. I was reading Fritz Lieber or Lieber or however he's pronounced. So a lot of this stuff was stuff that I was already reading. And then when DCC came out, I started delving into it seriously. So I have gone now and read or reread most of it. And I remember, Ashley, you had gotten, what, about halfway through the Appendix N? You had a little Appendix N series on your blog as well in terms of uh, a lot of the books that were listed there. And I remember you wrote up uh, Conan and Tarzan as an entry in there and stuff like that. So um, deep roots in the, in the appendix and even. Well, I, but very cool. Yeah. I've, I've been reading those ones for a very long time. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, the fellowship of the ring, J.R. Tolkien's fellowship of the ring is definitely a uh, rich source to, to, to uh, mine from. So let's go ahead and get into that in my hand right now. I am holding the 58th printing of the Ballantine fantasy paperback from August, 1976. And the cover here is this uh, Tolkien watercolor. Yep. 
he did the art himself, which was not something I was aware of before starting this podcast that he had done these particular uh, paperback covers. They're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, what editions are? What edition are you reading today, Hoy? I have an early 2000s trade paperback with the Alan Lee painting, but the cover, the copy that you have is the one that I actually read when I was young. Okay. And as part of my uh, infamous Chinatown dumpster find, I have the Pauline <laughs> Baines 1967 cover. So pretty. So, there we go. I don't have the Ace covers, though. Those are the uh, the bootleg ones. So yeah, this Pauline Baines one has the flamingos. Flamingos, <laughs> yes. There's a lot of flamingos in yeah. Fellowship of the Ring. Or oh. wait, no. And how about you, Daniel? <laughs> oh, yep. And that's Harper Collins. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because they sent it as a three book set, and because my copies otherwise have worn out. <laughs> I've actually read this book about fifty times. Wow. Wow. I think you read. Uh, you mentioned somewhere again on your blog that what is it about once every year, two years that you go through the yeah yeah that's amazing. Um, okay, great. So before we go into the library and discuss this book, let's quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Greensward. Greensward, and greensward is a archaic and literary term for a grass covered area, and it is found on page one twenty of this version that I'm reading. And it says, at the south end of the greensward, there was an opening. There, the green floor ran on into the wood and formed a wide space like a hall, roofed by the boughs of trees. So our word of the day is greensward. Greensward. And why did you pick that word? It felt very, it feels very Tolkien to me. It definitely has that kind of idyllic... Because at at this point, they're they're in, I believe, Lothlorien at Mm. that point. Um, or maybe they're not in Lothlorien no, yet. Yeah. is too early for them. To You're be right. Honest. They're not they're in Lothlorien yet, but they, they definitely encountered some elves. Still in yes. Right. yes, yes, yes. Okay. Golder and Glorian. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. It's at right. that moment. Right. Um, see? We see? the master on. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel, There's a reason you we that, that, that uh, really encapsulates the feeling of uh, fellowship for you? When Tolkien was writing those books, or Tolkien, or I'm not sure how you're actually supposed to pronounce his name, but when he was writing those books, the farther you get from the Shire, the more formal the language becomes. So I was mm-hmm. really curious what you guys would pick as a Hygaxian word for fellowship, because he, in fellowship, he is intentionally keeping his language more um, colloquial. And that's a good point you make, Daniel, because it, the, the Shire, we're, we're not quite the hobbits, but it's sort of our, we're our entry into the universe. And so we're sort of low-key POV, and, and we're seeing everything sort of at a hobbit's eye view. Almost, and and then as the world opens up around us, it becomes darker and more mysterious and, and more ancient. So, Daniel, you've you've read this book about fifty times. Uh, Hoy, you've read this an, quite a number of times as well. Um, probably eight or nine times. Eight or nine uh, times, but not uh, this time. The most recent time I had read this before then was probably in the early two thousands, roughly after the trilogy had finished at the theaters. And this is my second time reading it. So I'm definitely of the three of us the 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 inexperienced right. one. Uh, but you're probably a much closer reader than I am. So uh, you, you may pick up a lot more stuff than I do. So. Possibly. And I read it when I was 14 and I hadn't read it since. And it was very different than I recalled because I think because I had seen the movies so many times, the Peter Jackson movies, I think, replaced a lot of my memories of the original story. And yeah, it's 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 quite a bit different than I recalled, but I really, really enjoyed reading it. I'm assuming if I just ask the question, what do you guys think of this book? I'm assuming you're both just adore it. But do you have anything you want to specifically say about that? I have read this book 
so many times. And every time I read it, I discover something I had not really noticed before. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so interconnected and it's so carefully crafted. Um, it's not pulp. Like there's a lot of, uh, and, I, and I love pulp too, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's not like the uh, the pulp fiction where the person had to write it quickly. Yeah. He, he took his time and it's connected in ways that, well, nobody would have the time to do today, really. Right. I feel also that each time you read it, it's the book for you at that point in your life. So when you're reading it as a kid, you get something very different yes. out of it. And you're like, oh, The Hobbits is great. And it's that innocence and that sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. And then now as I'm approaching middle age, I get the sense of something else. And I get the sense of sorrow, of things passing away, um, of things changing. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you relating more to uh, to Farmer Maggot now? He's like, <laughs> get off kids, my, stop eating my mushrooms. Get out of my mushroom farm. <laughs> uh, well, various things. But, you know, I think that at every point in your life, you'll get something. And that's what makes this book so powerful is at every point in your life, you'll get something out of it. And this was – Tolkien didn't write this as a young man, right? He was he had seen yeah. the First World War. He was – World War II was starting as he was starting this work. And so he knew that the world was once again going into fire and chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was probably worried about his sons and, and the whole generation that had come up after him. Um, so every every time I read it, as you see, and I, I don't know that I would have the energy to read it every single year. I think I might have to, like, forget it and read it again. I'm not a fast enough reader to do that. Yeah. As you say, every time I read it, I get something different. And, I, and I'm like, did I read this before? <laughs> you know. So. It's interesting, though, that um, that you bring up World War II, though, because in the introduction of the version I have, Tolkien is going on and on about how he loathes allegory and how this novel is not allegory and it's not about anything other than the story that we're reading. And I don't know, it, it does seem to me like there's a lot of his, it seems to me a lot of his war experience had to have influenced what we're reading here because it feels very much like what I imagine the the sense of living through having been born in an, in an England that was idyllic and then having it torn apart by like the ravages of mm-hmm. like outside forces. What do you think? I don't think that you can create and not be affected or influenced by the things around you. Yeah. I don't think it's possible. Yeah. I, I think it's obvious that he was influenced whether he admitted it or not. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the one qualifier, and I think he was, I think he was just, he was just loath to, have people do a one-to-one correlation yeah, between yes. something that he was writing and something that was happening in the real world. And I think he was sort of hedging his bets in a sense by using allegory in the very formal sense, like when people say Christian allegory or mm-hmm. something like that, yes. uh, so, as opposed to something allegorical that we use in sort of the more common usage as we do it today. Yeah. So I think that's that's what he was probably reflecting in, you know, at the time. Um, but as you say, there's no way that he could not have been influenced by the life he had lived and the world that was changing around him. So, so what was the, what was your, in your latest reading, what jumped out at you that you hadn't seen maybe the last time you read? I don't know. I mean, like part of it is you are at different points in your life, like you were saying, right? I mean, there are parts of the, like, it's hard to say just the one book too. I know you're doing it one book, one book, one book. Yeah. And feel free to talk about the other books as much as you want to. I'm actually currently in the process again of rereading this to my youngest child. Oh, cool. And as a parent reading these books to your child, you discover that there are times that are so moving. I choke up. Like there are parts that actually bring tears to my eyes. Yeah. And you don't have that feeling reading it to yourself. It's the recognition, not only of the part of your life that you're in, but you're seeing the part of their lives that they're in. Right. Oh, cool. 
And actually, I did have a moment while while I was reading it to myself. I did get a little a little choked up a little bit, and it was with Sam Ganji and uh, and Bill the Pony. Uh, yeah. And actually, in in general, Sam Ganji gets me though because uh, gets to me because also at the very very end too, when he is like running down to the to the boat, and he's like, "You can't take off without me." Right. He's like, "I'll poke holes in this boat if you leave without me." Uh, that was also very very moving to me. I think while reading it on the subway, I suddenly had like goosebumps. In some ways, Sam Gamgee is the hero of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, it right. starts with him in the in the inn talking about uh, the walking trees, which will relate, of course, to Fangorn Forest later on. Mm-hmm. And it ends with him coming home at last. So you say like Bilbo, for example, with Gandalf's help, gives up the ring. When we get to the third book, Sam Gamgee gives up the ring himself. Mm-hmm. Right. I think Sam... And as you say, he's an interesting kind of hero because he is, out of all the heroic characters in the trilogy, he's not the one who has a higher calling. He's not Aragorn being ready to be restored to his throne. He doesn't have a destiny. It's all free will, in a sense, from Sam's point of view. And so that's what makes him truly heroic because he's a little, little person, both figuratively and in the grand scheme of things. But he is capable of this great heroism. But he does say he has a feeling that there is something he has to do. After they talk to the elves in the uh, greensward bit. So they're connected to something that is higher than themselves, but they are just themselves. Right. He's not an embodiment of a power. He's he's connected, but he's not um, uh, like Gandalf, one of the Maiar, you know, ascended down. He's not uh, an elder power like Galadriel or anything like that. He's just a stand in for us, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to know what your thoughts on thoughts are on one of the more controversial elements of the story. What do you think of Tom Bombadil? Tom Bombadil is absolutely great. He should have been played by Tom Baker in the film if they had done him. <laughs> I know Tom Baker's getting on in age and, and he probably couldn't do the capering, but he would have made a fantastic Tom Bombadil. So I know that it's, it's uh, you know, obviously Tom Bombadil is very controversial. Do you think Tom Bombadil is... Uh, both a, a literary remnant of something that Tolkien was uh, doing earlier, and then also a sort of like a an elder power, something that just sort of extruded out into the fiction that just you know he couldn't get away from in a sense. I think when you're reading um, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, in, in particular, at this you know in this point, you're looking at you go to Moria, you go to the Barrow Mounds, and you have Tom Bombadil. In particular, are all remnants of elder ages of Tolkien's world. He is effectively giving you an important history lesson of what the world is and is supposed to be. I I don't think that taking those characters out makes the story any stronger. Interesting. Interesting. And one of the things I, yeah, because Tom Bombadil is like the first thing that's cut whenever anybody makes any kind of an adaptation of it. But one of the characters that had been cut that I um, hadn't remembered at all was Fatty Bulger or Fatty Bulger. Right. Um, I'm not sure how you say it, but I had completely forgotten that character and he's great. And he is. without his sacrifice, there's a really good chance they never would have left the Shire. So really like this one character's sacrifice really like enabled for this, enabled this entire adventure to happen. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved if the, the Peter Jackson film had kept that character in and we could have seen the, uh, the, the, the black riders menacing the hobbits in the Shire. Cause that was some scary stuff. Mm-hmm. And it builds. Yes. Right? And yes. the hobbits being hobbits, keep 
going la da 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 da. They they forget that they're being chased. They start singing, they're drinking, they're having a good time. <laughs> they keep forgetting that oh yeah, these black riders are after us, which is fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's very um childlike, right? We forget we have a very bad moment. Something's very scary, uh, but then as soon as it's over, we forget about it and we're on to the yes. next thing. You know. And speaking of singing, it's funny how everybody in Tolkien's world sings. There's even even the Barrow Whites sing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting them to break out into song. <laughs> well, there is a because Tolkien was a uh, scholar of language, and and he, he translated a lot of things from Old English, and he translated a lot of things from uh, Norse. All the dwarves' names in the Hobbit come from the Elder Edda, for example. In those cultures, song has power. It's it's a form of magic, just like the idea that by renaming something, you can change what it is in uh, Tom Bombadil's is his master. What he says, his words and his song has has power in the Silmarillion. That goes back to the music of, of Anwe, where the world is sung into existence. And I tend to almost think of Tom Bombadil as a small piece of that music that rolled off and became a spirit of its own. And I think it's been one of the harder aspects to capture, right? You know, it's a lot of music in our culture, but it's not integral to our understanding of communication with each other. And the cartoon version of the film did incorporate some of that with varying degrees of success, but certainly Peter Jackson just omitted it and probably wisely. It it might not have worked really in in that kind of a cinematic style. Except for in uh, Return of the King, I think, where he has Pippin singing for Denethor, Mm, which was actually very effective. Yeah. Yeah, if it's done right, it would, yeah, it, it, it could I, work And well. I guess you would have to use it sparingly in a film context, unless you were going all out for a musical and doing it as a... Yeah, you know, Bollywood-style Lord of the style. Rings. I would be fascinated to see a Bollywood-style Lord of the Rings adaptation. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think you'd actually have to do something like Game of Thrones-style and do a chapter and make each... Like, yes. you know, you know, it's divided into six books, really. So there are two yes. books in the Fellowship of the Ring. So six seasons of Lord of the Rings. In I fact, think that'd be great. That's a good point you're making because we tend to think of uh, a trilogy and we know that it was for publishing reasons that it was broken to a trilogy. Um, but I was reading it and I was saying, hey, uh, at the end of the book, I said, this is supposedly the end of the first act, but it's really not. It's we were really into the second act already. Yes. Uh, because it's broken it's into two books into one paperback, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I forget what the second half of the book is called here, but I guess it's just book two, but it's it's really the second act. When they, you know, when the fellowship is broken, right? So we're thinking this is a really three acts, but as you say, it's six books. And so once the, once they leave um, leave Rivendell, they're essentially into the second yes. act, and then and so that's that's you know we're not really in sort of the Aristotelian three act structure, at least correlating directly book to book to book. And one yeah. of the surprises for me, having not read this and having watched the movies, was also it. it I didn't realize kind of. Um, how late in the book so many of these things really start to happen. You know, like, for example, I, I wrote down, yeah, it was, it's not even until page 106 that they even leave. The Shire. The sh- not even the Shire, just Hobbiton. <laughs> oh. They don't even leave the city until page 106. And then it's not until page 368 that the Fellowship leaves Rivendell. Right. And this is stuff that, in my mind, all happens pretty soon. Because at least in in the movie, like, they, you know, Bilbo has his party, then they take off. Then they're in Rivendell. Like it all kind of happens so fast. But here in in in, in the no, in the novel itself, 
17 years pass between <laughs> between Bilbo's birthday party. You know, Frodo's 33 at that party and Frodo doesn't leave until he's 50. Right. <laughs> uh, I think what we're looking at is uh, obviously one of the things is the difference of the medium. Yeah. Um, it's important in this book to have that long beginning so that we understand what's at stake. Yeah. What, what stands to be lost, the Shire and Rivendell and all that. And in the movies, you can establish that visually just by showing the Shire is perfect and bucolic. And please so. have me back when you do Return of the King because there's a lot to talk about there. Oh. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> that's awesome that didn't make it into the movie right right especially the uh, scouring of the shire but we'll leave that to later yeah, yeah. so but i think that's important to, to understand the stakes uh it's not just say it's not enough to say that the world will be destroyed or be under the yoke of you know sauron we have to show it yeah right and here he has to show it in the medium that he has which is the words and showing the culture and, and what stands to be lost and in general, the pacing of it, um, I don't mean the pacing as in the experience of reading it, but the pacing is, as in the pace in which the characters interact with their world is much kind of slower and kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's it's slower than I expected. How, for example, they'll, they'll, I think they spent like a month with Tom Bombadil and they spent like two months in Riv- Rivendell and like they'll like stop to rest somewhere and they'll just, a whole season will pass. They don't. They don't spend that much time with Tom Bombadil. Maybe it's not with Tom Bombadil then, but at least in Rivendell and then with, in Lothlorien, I believe in, two in months pass. In Rivendell, they spend a fair amount of time. Yeah, uh, and then in Lothlorien, time is a bit different. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, but they do tend and and also things like when they first go into the mines of Moria. Uh, they're walking down this tunnel and then Tolkien's like, and then eight hours later, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> They've been walking down this one tunnel in in Moria for eight hours? <laughs> um, again, also, I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, it's a pre-industrial world. So again, to us, for, to us to reconnect to the rhythms that we are, we've forgotten. Yeah. Um, so that Tolkien was still very much in touch with. And also to establish the scale of what's going on you know yeah. how big is more that was the, the center of a civilization yeah right it's not just a dungeon right sure in in, in gaming terms it's not it truly it's maybe is not like, even a mega dungeon it's really a city yeah or, or that entire mountain really uh, was know, this kingdom you know, uh, you know a nation that they're traveling through from one side to the other yeah so so are you finished with your current reread or is this uh in uh, with your with your, your youngest child or you i guess it's two paces right the pace at which you would read it and the pace at which you would read it to a child um i try to do a chapter a night when i'm when i'm reading it there are nights that get skipped there will be a bit of skip because of uh gary Cohn. um sometimes mm-hmm. for the longer chapters i break it up over two nights um, mm-hmm. but it's worthwhile and we're, we're talking now she's uh 11 i think i read it to her the first time at nine and is she reading along with you or is she just uh, i mean she's obviously old enough to read it but is she reading along with you or is she just hearing you read it to her um i'm just reading it but she's certainly capable of reading it if she i think wants. um obviously the hobbit's quite an easy read at that point but again um a lot of things will sort of skate over sort of like the genealogies when you're 11 that kind of stuff will tend to skate over your head a little bit when you're at that point in your life yeah you don't need to read the appendices at uh, at age 11 now Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, is this something you did with all of your kids? Um, I have read The Hobbit to all of my kids. Unfortunately, my middle child did not want to hear The Lord of the Rings, which was a disappointment. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? Maybe he got it from his mother. Exactly. <laughs> got it from his mother's side. <laughs> my, um, my, one of my oldest childhood friends, Kira, uh, her mother was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And Kira was almost named Galadriel. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
which is a beautiful name, but also how do you really shorten that? I'm right. not really sure what you do with, with that as a name. It's a hard name to live down. Yeah. Gala? High expectations. Gala. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Should be uh, Israeli. Laddie. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Laddie. So. I, I know somebody who named their uh, son Tamaril. Okay. Which is Tamil for short. But, you know, that's was taken out of the appendices of the uh, Silmarillion because oh, of the wow. dictionaries of the Elvish in there. Yeah. <laughs> so now when you go through and you reread the entire trilogy every year or two, does that also include a rereading of the Silmarillion or is that one that you read through much less often? Much less often. I've I've read through it maybe four or five times. Okay, that's still that's still pretty impressive. It's four and a half times more than I. Than I read. <laughs> well, if you decide to do the Silmarillion, then you can have me back on the show for that too. I'd be more than happy to. I've listened to yeah, this... every single one of yours so far. Oh, oh thank you. Thank yes, you. and 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 I, we really appreciate that you usually comment on the posts as well, and you're very engaged, and it's it's cool because we're we're big fans of your work. And Hoy's actually running us through the uh, uh, Portsmouth. Tales. Yeah, Fair, yeah, we're in Portsmouth Mermaid fourth session right now, but it's only the second night, so who knows? <laughs> who knows how long that'll go? But at least so three nights. Cool. At least three nights. Yeah. So, how much has Tolkien inspired your writing? Uh, a lot more when I was younger. Uh, again, okay. recently because of the DCC, well, like the last few years, I have been rebuilding an appendice and collection, and I have been reading the things that I've read before and the things that I haven't. Uh, Tolkien reminds you, I think, that you have to make the world seem real. Yeah. Like when you are doing a wilderness adventure, if you mention a few details, the place is a lot more real to the players than if you don't. Mm -hmm. You you walked eight hours through a forest. Never happens in Tolkien. Even though they walk eight hours through the forest, he mentions a few things that they see. Right. It's never just one sentence that you throw off. It's like, oh, there you go. You're here. You're there. You, you don't skate over anything in Tolkien, really. Yeah. He, he tells you what the land is like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're walking through hilly forest with oak and ash. It's not just right. a Yeah, you're forest. not going through this this hex of hills into this hex of uh, trees. Right. Yeah. It's just little details that make things specific that I think any, any judge, any uh, game master, any dungeon master can steal from Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. And like, for example, the what, what it was it just called the old forest that's outside of the Shire? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the old forest and the Mirkwood are both forests that we're, we're told are these ancient evil forests. And sure, ancient evil forests, those are all over fairy tales. We're all familiar with the concept of what an ancient evil forest is. But it's really cool that both of them are ancient in different ways and evil in different ways. You know, there's not just like a... a a, a cardboard cutout ancient evil forest. Like they each have their own story for why they, why they're evil and how that evil manifests itself. And or maybe evils aren't the right word for the old forest. Just the dangers, I guess. I dangers. Say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say again when you get to the second book and you meet the ants and you discover that there are trees that are sort of awake and kind of becoming ants, and ants that are sort of falling asleep and kind of becoming trees. Old Man Willow makes a lot more sense. And um, they also talk in that book about how a squirrel could once go from tree to tree without ever touching the ground from the Shire to Fangorn Forest. So in a way, Mm -hmm. the old forest can be seen as part of that same wood at one time. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, definitely that sense of continuity. And um, maybe this, you know, we live in United States as a young country. So we maybe doesn't latch, we don't latch onto that as much as obviously Tolkien, who's living on, you know, very ancient soil in a sense. Um, I have the benefit of having grown up in New England. So there's old growth forests and stuff like that. So I can sort of relate to that maybe in a way that, you know, someone who lives in South Dakota, which is, you know, Plains can't relate to. Um, but I think that, um, yes, that sense of the geographical specificity and, and Tolkien doesn't use ellipsis, unlike a lot of the other pulp fiction that we've read in Appendix N, right? You know, we were talking about that, I think on the, um, Gardner Fox episode where he just jumps from one scene to the next and here we go. And Tolkien does not do that. You're, you're on the journey with them. Yes. And he also with very, very, I think there's only one exception in the entire trilogy always gives you the point of view of the person who knows the least in any scene Mm -hmm. so that you learn along with the characters. And that helps to make, it helps to make the world seem more real. Interesting. I did not notice that. I didn't notice it either. It was pointed out to me this last year. Okay. And again, I've read it a lot of times. That's very cool. Yeah. That's an amazing point. uh, Yeah. Never would have occurred to me, you know, I mean, I mean, I feel like I'm discovering it, as I go along, but it never would have occurred to me that it's always the most um, yes. least experienced person in that scene, as you said. Sure. Yeah. So one of the obvious connections between the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, and Dungeons and Dragons fantasy role-playing games is elves and dwarves. Yes. Speaking on elves and dwarves, how are they similar and how are they different from kind of our more kind of generic fantasy role-playing game approaches to elves and dwarves? Well, if you're looking at D&D, the D&D elves are shorter than humans. That is not the mm-hmm. same for the Tolkien elves. They are taller than humans. Um, yeah. The Tolkien elves are powerful in a way that isn't just being a fighter magic user. Like, there is a spiritual sense to them. Like, they're... Yes. When uh, Frodo puts the ring on and he sees the elves with the ring on, he sees them kind of as they are seen by the by the nazgul uh which are these shining white beings in mm-hmm. inside the wraith world or inside the secondary spiritual world um i mean in tolkien that invisibility is sort of stepping more into the spirit world and less into the physical world um, the elves are mm-hmm. already there tom bombadil is so far there that he can see frodo whether he's got the ring on or not it doesn't affect him at all yeah that's fascinating. Um, and on a totally superficial level, they don't have, did they ever mention having pointy ears? No, they never do. I don't think they do. I don't <laughs> think they ever mention having pointy ears either. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is true. Like the, they're, they're, they're very different kinds of beings. Although, you know, aesthetically they are similar in some ways, at least in kind of the, kind of the perceived haughtiness, the, 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 the very long lived lives, the, the focus on arts and culture and kind of having finer things, that stuff is similar. Yeah, there's that. Um, it's it's hard to remember that the elves are sort of a primal force a lot of times uh, in D and D. But they're certainly, I mean, certainly, for example, Galadriel is depicted as a primal force yes. in, in Fellowship of the Ring. She's, you know, she's not in any way or shape human. She she sort of almost deigns to relate to mortals, but she's not human mm-hmm. in any me- meaningful sense of the word. And I love the moment where I forget if it's Sam or Frodo, but one of them asks her about elf magic. And she says something along the lines of like, I don't even understand why you call it elf magic. The word magic that you're using to describe the things that we do is the same word that you use to describe the things that the Dark Lord does. 
And I can't, I don't understand how that same word can be used to describe what I do and what they do. I get what you're saying, but it's more like she's admonishing his use of the word rather than I don't understand. Yes. She's been around long enough. She understands what he's saying. That's true. <laughs> she doesn't like it. <laughs> Fair enough. Good distinction. And part of the reason she doesn't like it is she's wearing one of the elven rings. Yeah. Right? One of the three. So, and of course, Soren has made use of his one ring lore that he learned from the elves. So there really is a similarity. Sure, sure. And she ultimately has enough self-knowledge to know that if she was given the ring, that she would be a dark, a dark lady, in a yes. sense. And, and that is her great test, is that she doesn't take mm-hmm. the ring. Um, and that is, all, I guess, ultimately a great test. And, and brings us back to when you're talking about Sam is the only one who resists that temptation. Uh, oh, without yeah. Does it Boromir it resist the temptation? Oh, Bart. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, I should say he's the only one that resists, but he's the only one who sort of readily does it, you know, does not like. Yes, he hands torn, it. Torn apart. He feels it. He feels yeah. it, but he can't hand it back. Yeah. Um, and nobody else can do that in, in, in yeah. the trilogy or in the history of Middle Earth. Right. Wow. Right. Even Gandalf is very much afraid of it. Doesn't he, you know, I mean, he does pick it up, I guess, briefly. No, does he, he have. He does pick it up. Frodo, he, yeah, he does. He does touch it in the fire. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. But, um, but at that point, it's still very much Bilbo. So he's not he's not afraid of that at that moment. But he's afraid of being given it. Yeah, he's yeah. afraid of accepting it. I mean, part of the the theme of that and the Hobbit is be careful of what you own, lest it own you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like that. I should tell you that to my uh, bookshelf of RPG games. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I just recently moved my RPG games and my books and my poor back. Um, oh, no. Box after box after box after box after box after box. So <laughs> sort of what I own owns me. <laughs> and living in New York City, where we don't have a lot of space to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how it is in Toronto. I mean, that's obviously the second biggest metropolis in, you know, the uh, uh, north of Mexico. So I, I don't know what space is like in Toronto, but <laughs> here it's definitely rough. So. Expensive. Sure. But not as expensive. As yeah, of right. course. So uh, we've discussed elves. Now, dwarves seem to um, hew much closer, the D&D dwarf yes. to the Tolkien dwarf. Um, the only kind of obvious exception for me would be that in, in the, in the Tolkien world, you know, humans have their world, their lands, hobbits, hobbits have their one land, dwarves and elves have their lands. We don't really have these like metropolises or these like metropolitan areas where like, here's your dwarven section of the city and here's your elven section of the city. All of these races tend to be pretty kind of xenophobic and very much focused within their own communities. Uh, that's different, but I think the actual kind of makeup and behavior and appearance of the dwarf is quite similar. What do you guys think? The dwarf out of all of them is the uh, least uh, standoffish to the other uh, races because you get right in the being in the Hobbit. The wandering dwarves wander through on their ways and they talk to hobbits and give them the news. The elves you discover wander through all the time. They just don't stop and talk to anybody or let anyone see them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, this the book doesn't uh, focus on the dwarves as much as obviously the Hobbit does. They still send emissaries from the Lonely Mountain to ask advice from Elrond. Right? They don't have to be prompted by dreams to do it. They don't have to. They, they just do it because they're they're less standoffish than the other than the other species in Tolkien's world. Yeah. That's Except true. for, of course, the humans yeah. were everywhere and. 
take whatever they want. Right. Now, right. are there any female dwarves in Tolkien? Yes. Uh, there are. Really? Okay. Yeah. There's that, yeah. that, that ongoing joke about then how they're never seen, though, right? Or that they have beards. But that's I don't know if that's from the Tolkien or if that's just a D&D extrusion of that. I, I that. believe that actually does come from the uh, from the appendices in Return of the King. Or from the Silmarillion, <laughs> I forget which. But there is a uh, there is a reference to that. Right, right. Now, the thing that seems to have uh, diverged quite a bit is the Hobbit and the Halfling. Eventually, yes. Yeah. Yes. The, the 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 contemporary concept of the halfling seems quite different than the Hobbit that we read in here. And then we also have halflings in DCC, which hew closer, but are still also pretty different in my mind. What do you guys think? I think the DCC lucky halfling is a mm-hmm. wonderful nod to both the Hobbit and Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings. Pippin is clearly yes. the lucky Hobbit in this book. Right, that that sense of being the mascot, the the one who just by being there doesn't doesn't necessarily bring anything to the table on the obvious sense of the word, but just by being there yeah. helps them. He notices the black rider on the stage behind them. He points out like he he does things that allow them to be lucky. Even when he wakens the Balrog in Moria, it turns out to be lucky. <laughs> and i suppose later on sam does performs that role for frodo in a sense um, no once you split the party you don't get to you don't get to do that there's only one lucky halfling yeah sure right right that's true, <laughs> true. all right right per party but but in a sense that sam is the help me and the aid and helps yes. frodo carry yeah. through he does but he doesn't uh, and bilbo uh, is very much he luck. doesn't share luck but pippin does seem to right um you know yeah. when uh yeah that when Frodo is hit by the spear and pinned up against the wall, and they have to roll his body over, and it turns out that he's alive, clearly Pippin loaned him luck. And <laughs> Absolutely, and in the Hobbit as well, when 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 Bilbo comes back and like uh, finds that uh, the, that they're all with the trolls or whatever, or, or it was with the orcs later, I forget which one it was, but yeah. at some point there's very similar stuff with Bilbo as well. That, and he's able and to help him get wrapped yes. up in the spider webs. Yes. And noses are sticking out. And just, yes. Yes. <laughs> he's very much the, the lucky halfling of the right. party. So that mechanic is a great mechanic to, to bring out that kind of flavor. I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the, the, the modern D and D halfling is just a small human. I don't really, I don't see a lot of the flavor of the Hobbit anymore. I don't see, I mean, even in a lot of the illustrations, they're usually wearing shoes. They have similar proportions to humans. They're just small. Uh, the idea is that they're kind of thieves and, you know, Bilbo was a burglar, um, but I don't really think halfling Hobbits in general were kind of thieves. So it seems like the... the no, they were stealthy. They were stealthy. Yes, they're very, they, exactly. They can, they can, they can walk around and not be heard. But beyond that, it seems like it's deviated pretty far from the source material in terms of what we're working with now. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think that DCC is actually a little bit closer back it to is. the source material. Agreed. Um, and in fact, uh, in OD&D, the halfling is not depicted as a burglar or a thief. Um, first of all, they didn't even have the thief class in the, the, the original white box. Um, it's depicted as a fighting, uh, fighting man. And actually, that holds true to the uh, the series too, because eventually, um, you know, Pippin and Mary are, are you know dowdy warriors. They're not as strong as the humans around them, but they would have to be characterized as fighting men if you were going to use them in any class. And so, and I believe in Chainmail, they were they were ranged uh, like like ranged 
I, I don't I don't know war games well enough to know the, the terminology for them, but I, they were like they, they they really latched onto the rock throwing ability, right, the, latch, the lock throwing, the and somehow they turned that into slings and bows. When you're when you're talking about um, like shooting at the wands and all kinds of things, they have very good hand eye. If you're uh, if you're a hobbit, you have good hand eye coordination. Right, mm-hmm. right. Good aim. Um, and, but in fact, uh, other than Bilbo actually being called a burglar and being stealthy, he doesn't pick pockets. He doesn't do, you know, yeah. he's not, um, I don't, I think he does climb a few times, but he doesn't do anything like, you know, with the rope. With the rope, right. So, so uh, now is Fellowship of the Ring and the Lord of the Rings in general an argument for or an argument against race as class? Hmm. For. For. And yeah. I'm going to I'm say good. the reason that it is for is because in Fellowship of the Ring, each of these these races is its own thing, mm-hmm. right? And the humans are taking over the world. So you have yeah. more diversity in humans than you actually mm-hmm. have in the races that you run into. And yeah, if you have race and class being separate things, so any race can be any class, suddenly those races become just a package of abilities. They're not Agreed. their own unique thing. They don't have to be set up that way. You could have races class where, for example, um, a particular race has multiple classes for that race. Mm-hmm. I right. did that with goblins. Mm. I gave them two goblin race classes. Right. The uh, sure. witch, the witch doctor and the uh, yes. goblin warrior. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. You could certainly either create unique classes for that race or do what they did in AD&D, which would sort of limit the list of available yeah. classes per race to, yeah. to fit the archetype better. Or like you can have your, like, for example, the high elves and the wood elves are different. Yes. Right. So perhaps those would be two different race as class character options. What's also interesting is the rangers are essentially a race as class as well. Yes. Uh, because, yeah, because the rangers are a specific race of men. Right. They're the descendants of the Numenorians. So they have... Uh, certain ancient knowledge and, and yeah um, yeah and a bit of elvish blood in them right right through uh luthien right 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 so um yeah that's that's true that's true because because uh obviously the gondorians are also descended from the numenorians but they don't have that same connection to the land and the earth in a sense that um, maybe faramir does but the rest of them don't in that uh in the same way that uh, aragorn does well one of my theories about aragorn by the way is that Aragorn, as he appears in the Lord of the Rings, is Tolkien's answer to Conan. Hmm, interesting. The freebooting wanderer who has traveled over most of Middle-earth, often in disguise, sometimes by other names, that eventually becomes king. Huh, I like that. I think I read somewhere, he had read Robert E. Howard, right? I think he actually had, and actually had admired the Conan stories. I think I had read that somewhere that he did do that. So that actually makes it, that's really interesting. Um, and everyone is interesting. He is what eighty eighty years old when he's encountered yes. at the uh, beginning of the story. Although he appears much younger, Elvish blood um, because El- Elvish blood and yeah. the Numenorean. Yeah, they mentioned that he's, a, he's a, there's a little bit of salt and pepper action going right. on, but that, that's about right. it. But he sort of he takes on the aspect of Conan that people tend to forget, which is the wiliness, the the the, uh, the observational skills, the comfort in nature, rather than the brute force, because the brute force seems to be more Boromir's thing. Uh, Boromir is the one who piles, yes. pushes through the snow when they're getting snowed in in Caradhras, and he's wider across the torso, and you know he breaks through the snow, and, and so the hobbits can follow. And that's not Aragorn. Yeah. So um, that's that's really fascinating a connection, though. I, we would never have thought of that. So yeah, Boromir is vainglorious, mm-hmm. right? He is out to win glory for himself. Mm-hmm. He wants to be the important character in the story, 
and that is his own fall. Right. Yeah. He doesn't realize he's not the hero. <laughs> right. But that's actually the same downfall that Soren has. He doesn't realize he's not the hero. He wants to order the world the way he wants it ordered. And that's the mm-hmm. same fault the elves have. Lothlorien is set off from the rest of the world. Um, so is Rivendell. And they use the elven rings to do that. And in fact, in one of his letters, Tolkien points out that the elves and Soren share that same primal fault in that they don't want the the music of Anwy to continue. They want to make it what they want it to be. One of the themes, working back to one of the original themes that is in The Lord of the Rings and because tied to one of the things you just said is um, the whole story of The Lord of the Rings is about the passing and change. But one of the great tragedies of the elves is that they're static. They can't change. Right. Right. Humans are dynamic. And the halflings, uh, hobbits, at first seem like they can't change, but it's more not it's not it's not a essential prob- problem with them. It's just more of their con- their their personality. But the dwarves are a little less resistant to change, but the elves cannot change. So that is their tragedy. Right. And Sauron cannot change. And so that is his tragedy in a yeah. sense. But the humans are infinitely adaptable, both in good ways and in bad ways. So that's why the humans are taking over Middle Earth and and also which will eventually become our world. That's, some people forget. Middle Earth is not a secondary world. It's our world. Oh, yeah. Borg, Borgil is Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the name of the, he is Orion, but, you know, it's, he mentions the belt and, uh, right. so everything that you see, in fact, you could, if you were really good at it, which I'm not, you could go back and try and figure out when it's supposed to be set. Mm. Right. In fact, I think that was one of the things that um, I think I read somewhere that was really hanging a Tolkien up for a long time. I think it was about the Hobbit, not the story, that he couldn't get the chronology right because he was always talking about the moon phases and like so, like exactly how long the journey was supposed to be, and that like hung him up for like a year trying That's to figure fine. out like this is why they had to stay in Rivendell for X Y Z period of time because in order for the light to hit and to show the gate, oh, <laughs> and so he was that concerned about that kind of stuff. So Gygax was kind of famous for denying that Tolkien was much was that much of an influence on Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, he says that the pulp stuff was far more influential on Dungeons and Dragons than Tolkien was. Are, do you want to call his bluff, or do you think that that's actually pretty accurate? I think it's true for the structure of the game, but when you look at monsters and you look at class, like the races that they included and things like that. I think that Tolkien's influence is undeniable, uh, but mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons is definitely not a Middle Earth emulator by any by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. It's far more pulp, and it's far more historical in with those things that that Gygax was really interested in in its structure. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of things that are taken out of that structure that are coming from Tolkien. So, what do you feel like? Um, if you wanted to kind of emulate Lord of the Rings and you wanted to try to do that with Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeon Crawl Classics or, 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 or another like OSR kind of game, what is, what is the, the pain point there that makes that hard to do, do you think? Oh, if I was doing it for DCC, I don't think there is really a pain point. Yeah. I think you could just say these are the creatures we're going to use and you could run DCC almost as written because Gandalf kind of avoids using spells all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and he does actually have a patron. Mm. I am a servant of the secret fire of Aranor. Okay. Yeah. When he's fighting the Balrog, he admits having a patron. Right. And that's actually one thing that cracked me up in the book, too, is you just said the Balrog. But Legolas says, 
It's a Balrog. Yes, there are. More Apparently, there's one. a bunch of them. There were more than one. They were. Uh, <laughs> they were like, Soren was not the original big bad in Middle Earth. Uh huh. So Soren was. Yeah, you guys know way more about this stuff than I do. <laughs> Soren was originally his lieutenant, right? And Melkor had these servants, which were the Balrogs, plural. Mm. And presumably, when the Valar came and actually made war against Melkor and Middle Earth, they were destroyed but not all of them. And possibly just because you run into one doesn't mean that later on you couldn't run into more than one. And that's what's so funny to me when you look at the old like Judges Guild materials and you look at the like the city state of the invincible overlord and they have balrogs who are like running shops. In the <laughs> city state. The butler and <laughs> things like that. Um, but- you know, one thing that maybe Tolkien doesn't give, get given credit for is actually he's quite an effective um, horror writer, mm-hmm. right? If, oh, since we mentioned yes. Balrogs. No doubt. And the ring rates are very, you know, the, the whole... Um, so scary. Uh, the scene on Amun Sul when they're surrounded by the ring rates yes. is incredibly scary. And it then is. later on when we find... Well, yeah, the Watcher at the Gate, the tentacles, the hands coming out. Yes. Uh, and so then good. Um, later on when we get the description of uh, Gandalf's battle with the Balrog, we find that the Balrog is almost a Lovecraftian being. It's, you know, they, they burrow down into the earth and they all the way up into the sky and it's wormy and slimy. And, and you know. so is the Watcher. Right. The Watcher is really, right. it's, a, it's a Lovecraftian type creature. Right. Right. I mean, you never actually find out what it is. Here's a question for you. The big debate, one of the big debates, do Balrogs have wings? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, they don't have physical wings but they certainly it's, it seemed to spread out its essence it looked like wings um, obviously when the bridge broke it could not fly I don't think Gandalf was that heavy <laughs> and plus it whips him as it's falling if it had wings Gan- that would have been a completely different battle okay from the words of the Raven Crow King himself yes and no <laughs> Do you agree with that? Um, that's it, like uh, Gilder and Glorian, right? They said, don't go to the elves for advice. They'll say both yes and no. That's just, sorry, that's my... <laughs> <laughs> it says that, that the shadow spread like wings, I believe, rather than yes. yeah. it spread wings. That were like a shadow. I mean, two different things, right? Right. Um, I think, again, there was a passage in the Silmarillion about them, like, flashing through the sky, the Balrogs, something like But again, it, doesn't, it never says that they have wings. So, uh, you know, and I ha- again, I've only read it half a time. So, I guess, versus, you know, five times for you. So, um, And I could be wrong, so even even then, right? Like, there's <laughs> so much stuff in there. Like, it's actually really chock full of stuff. Right. Um, there's a bit, for example, where you get the barrel blade, right? And the barrel blades were designed to go against the Witch King of Angmar. Later on, of course, Mary will use that against the Witch King of Angmar, which was the chief of the Nazgul. So that fact that it was actually has a special purpose. It's, it's a magic blade with a special purpose. And it is used for yeah. that special purpose is a uh, reason why it bites. There's, there's like connections throughout the entire thing that are not called out. Right. I mean, the obvious one is by, not by hand of man. So that's when, you know, Mary and um, uh, whoever from the, the lady of the uh, the riders, uh, trying to remember, forget her name, I'm blanking. But um, but as you say, that's the obvious sort of sense of destiny. But, yeah, you, know, you know, as you say, that the swords were there to fight. Yeah. To fight the uh, the Witch King and the Witch King's minions is uh, a more subtle connection. But it's it's there. It's layered in there. And I like how the folklore is sort of 
not unreliable, but can be seen from a couple of different perspectives, as you say. And that's how folklore really works in our, yes. in our universe, right? There's always uh, 10 different iterations of Snow White. Which one do you choose to believe? And so, and, and Tolkien obviously was very conscious of this as a, as a scholar of folklore or a scholar of language. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's not one truth that can be latched onto. I mean, it may be there, but it's buried under layers of history and, and, and oral transmission. Yeah, that's great. So we're actually running pretty low on time at this point. It's amazing how fast this episode has been going. Um, I feel like we could have another two hours on this. But before we wrap up, I'm curious if anybody just has any kind of last thought that maybe something from the book that they read that really kind of sparked something for them that they'd like to share uh, before we wrap up. From Moria, the love of chasms in any kind of a dungeon. Like uh, every dungeon that's of any real size requires some kind of a chasm. Like for the bridge of Casadum, like that is wonderful. Yeah, the idea of falling, right? We don't have falling enough in our games, right? Falling to or the potential of falling. That's cool. <laughs> Mine is at the prancing pony when I forget if it's Merry or Pippin, but one of them starts kind of mouthing a little bit too much and getting a little drunk. And Pippin, Pippin is insane a little Pippin. bit more than he should. Uh, so Frodo gets up and decides to distract everybody. So he gets up on and he does and he does. And the way I envisioned this working, because, you know, in the story, he gets up there, he sings a song, has everybody's attention. So it seems like it's a huge success. But then he falls off and the ring falls on his finger. The way I thought of that in my mind is I was like, well, maybe if this were a gaming environment, he, he, I would be like, okay, I'm going to get on the table and distract everybody by singing a song. And I'm like, okay, great. Like, give me a personality check. (laughs) So if you roll a d20 and you got a natural one, maybe in that environment, I actually that might actually be a really creative fumble to be like, actually, you have everybody's attention. The entire the, <laughs> people, people from outside are even gathering around to watch you perform. <laughs> and then you throw in that little complication at the end that like now everybody knows who you are and why you're doing this. There's, it inspired me to think of more creative ways to use my fumbles. There is some verbiage there too that somebody in that room is willing him to put the ring on. Like the ring is, mm. don't forget, the ring is trying to be found. Yes. So it's like Bill Fernie or one of the people in there in the room. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah. they, they mentioned the Southron character who is presumably one of the more human-like Urukai. And by the time they leave the Shire, Saruman has already infiltrated it. In fact, possibly before Bilbo's birthday party, because the uh, thing with Ted Sandyman's son, about it, they, they sort of imply that there is already some commerce going on with uh, Isengard. It's true, right. And I guess Tolkien would have been aware of, again, I know he resisted allegory, but he would have been aware of like, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the British fascist in the 30s that, you know, fascism was there starting to sprout up even in the UK Mm -hmm. in the 30s. So he would have been aware of stuff like uh, fifth columns and and stuff like that, Um, you know, and the, you know, and there was the German American Bund here in the United States, that kind of stuff like that. I think one thing that we take away, even with the idea of racist class is that each of the halflings was different. There was a little halfling party. At the beginning, before these even the fellowship, there's actually an adventuring party. That was the funnel. Yeah. Right. It's the funnel. It's the four halflings, but they're each played differently and they each have different personalities and roles. So it's really not about, don't get limited by, oh, I can only play a halfling like this because Mary is clearly different from Pippin, from different from Sam, different from Frodo. Oh, yeah. Go with it. You know, and halflings can be cool. I know a lot of people like to hate on hobbits and halflings, but they can be cool, uh, not just because of the rules, but how you can play them. So um, I think that's there. Um so much there's so much and you know we could have like another six episodes just on this one book let alone the other two trilogy books in the trilogy so 
Absolutely. So this is a good place to wrap up. So Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and share your immense, um, <laughs> immense volume of knowledge with us on this topic. Yeah, well, in this case, it's a sheer, sheer joy. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> yes. And our next episode, episode 25, will be on Andre Norton's Witch World. And episode 26 will be on Lord Dunsany's The King of Elfland's Daughter. Okay. Uh, if you want to reach us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on yeah, and actually speaking of that, yeah. uh, Hoy and I, uh, the Appendix N Book Club, we're going to be starting a Patreon soon. And we're in the process of figuring out what the different membership levels will be and what they will entail. And most likely, one of the one of the membership levels will include an opportunity to have a virtual book club with Hoy and I. We're still trying to figure this out right now. But if you guys have any um, any ideas or any comments on this idea, please send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com and let us know what your thoughts are. We also have a Facebook group. Is that also Appendix N Book Club? Uh, it is, yes. It's also a good place to comment. Uh, we can also be found on Twitter at, uh, at appendix underscore N. Um, so yes, let us know what's going on um, and we'll see you in stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>